0: Any thought that does not honor Jesus Christ needs to be captured and destroyed because all sin begins in the mind and the heart and we are responsible for what we think. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ.
1: Welcome to MANA Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth, expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad
0: Hannon. fellow students, if you would turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 uh, will begin uh, at verse 17. Keep your Bibles open. This is a a pretty broad lesson. We're going to cover the last half of the chapter uh, today, Lord willing. Uh, Ephesians 4, the first half of this chapter, really stresses the importance of living in unity. If you've been with us the last week or two, We've been talking about the body of Christ, the family of God, and the unity and the power that that has for ministry in the world because it's so supernatural. Today we'll look at verse 17 to 32, and it talks about the importance of living and holiness in the world and the power of a pure life and how that impacts the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. Remember, Ephesians is, is really divided into two parts. The first three chapters talks about our new life in Christ, and the last half of the book, chapters Uh, four to six, really discuss our new lifestyle, how we live in light of the reality of what God has done for us in the first three chapters. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 17, if you'd be so kind. Paul is writing to the Ephesians, Gentile Christians, and he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is the principle. And it's a long one and it's extensive. So please uh, take notes and I'll read it a couple times. Before Christ, our minds were blind Our hearts were hard, our conscience was calloused, and we were dominated by our selfish desires so that we lived eternally empty lives. Before Christ, our minds were blind, our hearts were hard, our conscience was calloused, and we were dominated by our selfish desires so that we lived eternally empty lives. So Paul is describing how not to live he's basically saying before you met christ before christ met you this is how we live this was our state of mind our state of being and he says i'm affirming i'm testifying which means to call into court a witness solemnly exhort he's basically saying jesus christ has some very serious things to say to you and i'm his witness i'm his mouthpiece and he says do not walk any longer as you used to walk. Now, walk is a metaphor for live. He says, don't live like you used to live. It's a a lifestyle. It's a habitual way of living and moving and operating and thinking in the world. And he basically says, you Gentile Christians, now that you know Jesus Christ, your lifestyle should change. It should radically change from what it was before when you were not Christians. The unbeliever's world centers around what? Self, right? It's all about me. The Christian's lifestyle and thinking and behavior centers around Christ. Radically different center of gravity, radically different lifestyle. Number one, he says, their minds are blind, and he uses the word futility. Futility is the failure to produce anything of eternal value. Now, there are many, many brilliant people that produce a whole lot of stuff on planet Earth, but if it doesn't make it into heaven, it's futile. It's eternally valueless. It may be great and wonderful down here, but if it doesn't produce anything of eternal value, it's futile. Futility is the word for vapor or breath. You know, you go outside on a cold day and you, you breathe out and the vapor comes out and then what happens to it? It disappears. We used to have fog here back in the day, way back in the day, and then the sun would come out and the fog would disappear. That's the kind of a thing. So futility or vapor means it's something that doesn't last. It's like chasing soap bubbles or building sandcastles on the beach when the tide's coming in. It's not going to last. He says, before Christ, we spent an enormous amount of time being blinded with futility. We were chasing things that didn't matter and didn't last our world seems to be preoccupied with trivia why would anybody eat bugs on fear factor or why would anybody get filmed without any clothes on trying to survive in the wild this is intelligence right it seems like what we call civilization is kind of going backwards these days right we have a world that is preoccupied with the trivia with futility So he says, number one, your mind is blind, but number two, verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, this is before Christ, excluded from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them. Darkened literally means to cover with darkness. It means living without sight or light. It means to have a spiritually blind mind, which we all did before we met Jesus, before he met us, we were spiritually blind. We were excluded from the life of God, which means we were separated, we were cut off. We were alienated from God. We didn't have a relationship with God. We were not in fellowship with him because we were at war with him. And that was based on ignorance. Ignorance, it means lack of knowledge. It means we didn't know anything about divine realities. It means before Christ, we were unable to think through things from God's perspective. We were unable to understand divine truth. Paul says this is not ignorance based on ignorance. This is willful ignorance. This is chosen ignorance. By the way, ignorance just means without knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge and Greek. Ig means obviously not so, not knowing. And it says, Paul says, they're ignorant because they chose to repeatedly sin to the point where their heart was hardened. Their heart was hardened, and so therefore they had a blind mind. And the Greek here is really interesting. It means a petrified heart. It means a petrified heart. How many of you have ever been to a petrified forest, seen petrified wood? What you have there is you have something that was once living that is now dead. Wood was once living. You had a forest that was alive, and it died, and it petrified, and that wood turned into stone. So when he talks about a hard heart, he says... You, before Christ, had a heart of stone toward God. You had a hard heart toward God. It's like a callus. You know, if you've ever broken a bone, believe it or not, where that bone breaks, it heals stronger and harder than any other bone that you have because God has ensured that that break will probably not happen there again. You might break something else someplace else, but where that bone heals, it heals stronger and harder than the others. So that's kind of the word picture here of a, of a stone heart or a hard bone. Uh, and the, second, the third one is it's not just heart, it's paralyzed. So a hard heart is one that's stone, it's not living, it's insensitive, and it's unable to respond, it's paralyzed toward God. He says, before you met Jesus, your heart was paralyzed to God, it was unable to respond to God. In verse 19, he gives us a little more picture. He says it's callous. You have a calloused conscience and callous means insensitive to pain. It means deadened to pain. When I was a kid, I worked a lot in the, in the fields and I had calluses all the time. Calluses are just areas that through repeated use, your, your skin builds up to the point of time you can't feel anything through a callous. Callous is like a brand mark where you brand cattle, you sear their flesh, their hide, and you kill the nerve endings underneath that brand. So if you touch a callus or you touch a brand, you have no feeling in that. So he's saying, that's what your conscience was like. You've sinned to the point in time, Gentiles, who did not know Jesus before Christ, sinned to the point in time where they deadened, they literally deadened the nerve endings of their conscience, they couldn't feel anything. They didn't feel bad when they sinned because that conscience Has no feeling; they were insensitive to God, and he says as a result of that they give they gave themselves over to sensuality. And the word "gave themselves over" literally means betrayed. They betrayed themselves. They sold themselves to sensuality. This is a really wicked picture. Literally, sensuality means shameless wantonness. It means unbridled lust. It means no restraint of any kind. It means desires that know no boundaries. Kind of sounds like our culture a little bit, doesn't it? You know, some people try and hide their sin. Remember you used to see the live um, shots of um, mafia folks or people that are convicted of a crime in court and they cover their face, right? They're looking down. They put a something over their face, so that they feel shame and they want to cover themselves. Paul says the sinner with a calloused heart loves their sins so much, feels no shame about it that they openly practice it and they brag about it. And our culture approves it on talk shows, don't they? Haven't you been amazed at some of the stuff you hear? That people say they're doing these things and you're saying, you're talking about this in public. Really? That's a calloused conscience. And we have a culture that by and large has grown extremely insensitive to sin. Very comfortable with sin. Matter of fact, we've redefined it to the point in time where unless, as Pastor Roger was saying this morning, you're an Adolf Hitler or a Mao Zedong, well, there's almost anything that goes because we've redefined truth and we've redefined sin. So the sinner with a calloused conscience, this is before they know God, has a hard heart and a blind mind, they practice sin as a habitual activity. They practice moral filthiness with with impunity, and he uses an interesting word. He said they practice their impurity with greed. Greediness means an increasingly insatiable desire to have more and more. So a greedy person is never, never satisfied. They have to have more and more. So he says, without Christ, before you met Christ, you lived a life of habitual sin, of habitual self-indulgence, and it was never satisfied. And so you don't care who you have to hurt to get to what you want. If you want something, you will abuse people in order to get it. And we have a culture today that unfortunately I don't think most of us understand how depraved it really is. When you read the paper and you read stuff over and over and over again, we tend to just take it for granted because we're exposed to it so much. It is wicked, it is evil, it is sensuous garbage. The culture behaves like an addict that only cares about what makes them feel good, right? and doesn't care who they have to hurt to get it. So our world today is morally confused or calloused and mentally blind. Now, Paul says this is all those who do not know Christ. He says you who know Christ should not be living like this. You don't have a blind mind. You don't have a callous conscience. You don't have a hard heart, right? You know Jesus Christ and you should not live like they live. There should be a marked difference between how we live as believers who know Jesus and those who do not know Jesus. He says in verse 20, by way of contrast, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. It's interesting, he doesn't say, but you did not learn about Christ. He says, but you did not learn Christ. You know, I have not learned anything about Christ from the world. We didn't learn anything about Jesus Christ from our own mental capacity. We learn about Christ and we learn Christ from where? The Bible and our relationship with Him, as the Holy Spirit teaches us. He says, you learned Christ. Have you ever figured out that learning a person is far more complicated than learning a book? Those of you that are married, you understand. Learning a person takes a lifetime. And we still know very, very little at the end of the day about the people we live with. It's far more than learning facts about Christ or knowing facts about him. It's experiential knowledge. It's relational knowledge, which requires spending a lot of time. You know, if you really wanna know your spouse, your children, your friends, your family, it requires T-I-M-E. And that's how your children and your grandchildren spell love. T-I-M-E. There is no other way than spending time and lots of it. Paul now shifts and he says, here's how you should live. Here's how we should live in light of our new life in Christ. Verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life before Christ, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Here's the principle. Following Jesus means stopping our old sinful behaviors, filling our minds with God's word and living holy lives. Following Jesus means stopping our old sinful behaviors, filling our minds with God's word and living holy lives. So he says, your former manner of life, this is how you lived, your character, your choices, your attitudes and your actions before you met Christ. And it was a self-centered life. It was not a Christ-centered life before Christ. He says, I want you to take those things and I want you to put them off. Just put them away. It literally means to take off clothing. You know, you take off your jacket and you hang it up. You literally move it. And he says, I want you to take off the old self. What he's talking about is something that's old, that's worn out. It's used up. It's useless. It's worthless because it's used up. That's the old self. The old self means the old life before Christ. And he describes it as being corrupted. The old self is being corrupted. It means to be decayed. It means to be defiled. It means to be degraded. It means to be rotten. The old self before Christ was rotten. It was decayed. It was dying. You know, and our, when we look around today, iron rusts, right? Fresh fruit, it rots. Our bodies get old and decrepit, right? That's just part of the consequence of sin and the law of entropy at work here, all because of sin. And Paul says, that was before Christ's. And he says, the old self, your old life, how you used to live, was corrupted with the lusts of deceit. It's interesting. Lust is the desire for and craving for something that is forbidden. Best definition of lust I ever heard. Lust is any appetite that cannot be satisfied inside the will of God. Lust is any appetite that cannot be satisfied inside the will of God. If it can be satisfied inside the will of God, it's not lust. It's a God-given desire that he wants you to, to meet. And he says, lust is deceitful. Deceit means to cheat, means to deceive, to lie, to mislead. Lust will always lie to us. Lust always lies to us. It promises and that does deliver. Lust promises you satisfaction, leaves you hungry. Every I'll tell you what lust is like. It's like drinking seawater from the ocean. The salinity of seawater is four times as great as the salinity of your blood, four times. There's four times as much salt. When you drink seawater, your body actually dehydrates because your kidneys demand extra fluid to flush the salt out of your system that you're putting into it by drinking the seawater. So the more seawater you drink, the thirstier you get, because the body's excreting more water trying to flush the system. When you drink enough seawater, you actually die of thirst, even though you're drinking more and more and more water. Furthermore, too much seawater off causes delirium, which means you believe that drinking more water will actually be the solution when actually drinking more water is just killing you quicker. That's what lust does. It lies to us. Satan is a master of putting a temptation in front of you. He said, If you eat the fruit, you will be like God. You ate the fruit, guess what? You ain't like God. It got worse, it didn't get better. That's the nature of lust. That's the nature of temptation. Lust always lies, and the cure for lust begins in your mind. That's why he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans 12, 2. Paul is speaking and he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Phillips translation says, don't let the world press you into its mold. Like jello, you ever pour jello into a mold? Whatever the mold is, the jello follows the contours of the mold. He says, don't let the world press you into its mold. Years ago, when computers first came out, we had something called GIGO, G-I-G-O. Know what that stands for? Garbage in, garbage out. The world wants to stuff your mind full of garbage. Would you say that's true? Of course. Many Christians struggle with the old self. You know why? They keep feeding it. If you feed your mind with toxic trash, you're gonna have mental halitosis. That's just the nature of the beast, right? Whatever you feed gets stronger, whatever you starve gets weaker. Yes, so we should be feeding the right stuff and starving the wrong stuff. So first thing is we have to starve the old self by shutting off the trash coming into our mind. What the world calls entertainment A significant percentage of that is toxic trash. So we who know this should not be putting sewage into the brain. Because if we put garbage in, what are we going to get out? Garbage, right? We need to feed the new self, the life in Christ, by immersing our mind and washing our mind with God's word every day. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to trust that most of you washed your body this morning. I hope you did. Most of you fed your body something this morning. Same thing with our mind. We need to wash our mind every day with the word of God. We need to feed our mind every day with the word of God. That's where the power comes from at that point. And that's why, how we get the power to discipline our thought life by submitting every thought to Jesus Christ. Any thought that does not honor Jesus Christ needs to be captured and destroyed because all sin begins in the mind and the heart, and we are responsible for what we think. Second Corinthians ten five says, we, Paul is talking about Christians, we're destroying speculations, and every lofty or prideful thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and here's the key phrase, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How many of you ever thought thoughts you probably shouldn't think? You know often that happens to me? all the time. I don't ever have to wonder. My mind can go into left field in 30 seconds. It can go there in three seconds. It can go there every three seconds. So battling the mind and reigning in the mind and bringing the mind back to focus on the things of God is a moment by moment battle because the battleground is in our minds. Satan is always gonna try and fill your mind with garbage. He will always try and tempt you to take your eyes off Jesus. Anytime you have a thought that takes your mind off Jesus, run to Jesus, renew your mind by reviewing scripture. Scripture is the power. When you fill your mind with God's truth, there's no room for Satan lies. And that's one of the reasons why we're big believers in Bible memory. You know what a Bible verse is? It's ammo. It's the ammunition you're gonna fight Satan with. What did Jesus use to fight Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days? He used the ammo of scripture and he stops Satan dead in his tracks by quoting the powerful word of God right in his face. The Lord says blah, 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 right? We have to build our immune system by saturating our mind with God's word. That's the only way we're gonna be able to put off the old self and put on the new self. So we get rid of the old, which means lay it aside, which is a conscious choice because Satan wants to keep you like you were before Christ, captured to sin. Renew your mind, that's the power source, and then put on the new self. It means like putting on a coat, putting on clothing, clothe yourself. Put on this new man, put on these new habits as we pursue the things of God. The new self, of course, is your life in Christ. The new self is the power of Christ in you that came at the moment of salvation. If anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come, brand new things have come. I presume everyone I see here is clothed, which is a good thing. I presume that you chose what to wear this morning. Somebody chose what you put on today, whether it was you or somebody else, right? Guess what? Every morning we choose what thoughts to think and we choose what behaviors to put on, don't we? We make that choice. Choosing to put on the new man or the new person, the new life in Christ is choosing to submit every day to submit our attitudes and actions to Jesus Christ. That's why I'm such a big believer. Begin your day with the Lord. Begin your day with prayer. Begin your day with God's word. If you wake up and let circumstances dictate your attitudes, you're gonna have a bad day. And you know how many, many people start their day? They reach over in bed, they grab their iPhone and they start their emails. Now that's really inspirational. Or they start scrolling through the news. Now that really inspires you, right? I mean, you know, you're filling your mind with what? Really not good stuff, first thing. I mean, that's like mud pies morning, noon, and night. I mean, you know, God has a banquet. Start your day, I mean, I'm rolling now. Start your day with the Holy Spirit. Start your day with prayer. Start your day with God's Word. So as your internal condition changes because you're in God's Word, the lifestyle will follow. He's going to give us five commands right in a row. There's three parts to each one. He says, don't do this. Do do this, and here's why you should do this. Number one, verse 25. He's therefore, in light of laying aside the old, renewing your mind, putting on the new, here's some examples of stuff you need to stop doing and some stuff you need to start doing, and here's why. Number one, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Here's the principle. God's family must be truth-tellers and promise-keepers. God's family must be truth-tellers and promise-keepers. Falsehood is obviously a lie. It's not unintentional. It's a conscious, intentional falsehood spoken with the intent to deceive. The story is told about a busload of politicians on campaign trail who got into a terrible accident where their bus ran off the road and hit a huge tree. Old farmer came on the scene of carnage, blood, and bodies. The old farmer got his backhoe, dug a large pit, and buried all the bodies. A couple hours later, the sheriff shows up. He sees the mangled bus against the tree and he asked the farmer if everyone on the bus was dead. farmer said, Well, some of them said they were alive, but you know, them politicians lie. <laughs> I could have just used another class of people, right? He says, stop deceiving each other. Not just through words, but through silence. Sometimes we lie with our silence. Sometimes we should speak up and we don't speak up. Speaking the truth is saying what God says. You will never get in trouble with God by saying what God says. And you don't know what God says until you read his word. And he says, here's why you should speak the truth and stop lying. He said, we're members of each other. The actual phrase there is limbs on a body. Your limb is connected inextricably to your body, right? We are inextricably connected with each other. We're a body. We're the body of Christ. We're the family of Christ. You know, if, if the nerves on your feet fail, To communicate accurate information to your brain, you can stumble and fall. That's called peripheral neuropathy. Yes? Yes. Pretend like you know what I just said. I have a lot of friends with diabetes that have peripheral neuropathy. It is tough to walk because the nerves on the feet are lying to the brain. When the nerves on the feet lie to the brain, the body can fall over because it can't feel. He says, you are the body of Christ. When we lie to each other, we hurt the body and we hurt ourselves because we're part of the body. The only way the body of Christ can be unified, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is based on truth. Truth is the foundation for unity. Number two, verse 26 to 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Wow. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Here's the principle. Unresolved anger can give Satan an opportunity to set up shop in our heart. I was going to say it does, but I thought I better be careful and say can't. Unresolved anger can give Satan an opportunity to set up shop in our heart. To be angry means to be provoked. To be means to be emotionally aroused and displeased. And here's the phrase that always takes my breath away: "Be angry and yet do not sin." I don't know if I've ever done that, honestly. Righteous anger is possible, but not very common. Most human anger is selfish and sinful because most of the time we get angry when the goal we want is being blocked by someone or something. By the way, just self-diagnosis. I would venture to say that the vast majority of our anger comes from just one thing, blocked goals, blocked goals. There's something I want and something is blocking me from getting that goal and I get angry about it. Go back in your own life and say, what makes me mad? Stuff that I want that I can't get, okay. Most of the time, our goals are selfish and we can't get what we want, so we get angry. And most of the time, our anger controls us instead of us controlling it. You know, the truth of it is God gets angry, but God does not sin because God gets angry for the right reasons. God is completely good and perfectly holy, and all sin profanes His holiness and perverts His goodness. Sin is a direct attack on God. So, righteous anger is the absolute correct response to anything that dishonors God. I was just talking this morning with Ron about William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce spent 20 years in British Parliament in the early 19th century to outlaw slavery. He was angry over sin, but he was righteously angry over slavery. It took 20 years to put a coalition together to get outlawed. And he was angry the whole time, but it was righteous anger because it was over sin. Most of our anger is probably rooted in selfish stuff. We don't get angry over God's character very often. We get angry over our own convenience. Jesus became angry on multiple occasions, but it was always righteous anger. And Pastor Roger alluded to it this morning. Remember when Jesus was about ready to heal a man's hand? The man had a withered hand. He was in the synagogue and his hand was paralyzed. Jesus was going to heal him on the Sabbath day and the Pharisees confronted Jesus because he was doing work by healing this man on the Sabbath day and Jesus was furious because they were willing to let this man suffer So Jesus wouldn't heal him because it was the Sabbath. Now that's righteous anger. Paul says the solution for that is don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you deal in anger, deal with it quickly. Confess it, repent, make amends if they're required. Interesting, the Associated Press reported that a Texan named Don Nutt says that he and his wife had been married 50 years and have never gone to bed without settling any differences between them but he does concede there have been times when he went 10 days without sleep. (laughs) Yeah. He says, not only that, he says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't allow Satan to rent office space in your heart. Because if you give him a broom closet, he's going to want the whole floor and he's going to want the whole building. Anger can give Satan a platform. Unresolved anger is an open invitation, a beachhead in your life that Satan will use to tempt you to further sin. Remember Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve, oldest, number one, number two. They brought offerings to the Lord. It says the Lord was pleased with Abel's offering, not pleased with Cain's offering. Cain became very angry and God warned Cain in Genesis 4.7. He said, Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching, ready to ambush you, at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Obviously, Cain didn't fail to discipline his anger, and it took him over, and it grew to the point where he killed his brother. Now, that's an example of not just Satan taking up a broom closet in your life, but dominating your whole life. So, Deal with anger. Quick, don't leave it unresolved and bring it to the Lord to make sure it's righteous anger and not selfish anger. Number three, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Here's the principle. We must work hard so that we have a surplus, not for ourselves, but in order to share with those in need. We must work hard so that we have a surplus, not for ourselves, but in order to share with those who in need. In the ancient world, thievery was epidemic. It was everywhere. And you're gonna look at this and you're gonna smile because we have the same things today. The main gathering areas for people in a community were the public baths because they didn't have a lot of plumbing at that point. So they had public baths with hot water, running water, etc. So people would do the public baths. Guess what happened in public baths? They people stole your belongings while you're in the water. Does that sound like a gym today? All the cars park at the gym, they break into your car. You're here at church, that's why we have people in golf carts rolling around because anytime stuff's left unattended, it gets stolen. Of course, the seventh commandment says, thou shalt not steal and the Greek word for steal is klepto. That's where we get the word kleptomaniac, right? To commit theft, to take what's yours without permission. Theft is motivated by greed. Greed says, I don't have enough, I want more, and it's never satisfied. A related word for that is coveting. Coveting is a strong, selfish inner desire to have what doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to somebody else. So both coveting and greed lead to stealing. It's interesting how that can trap us. In Africa, for instance, it's common to trap monkeys by filling a gourd with nuts and then fastening that gourd to a tree. So you have a gourd like this, and you cut a hole that's just big enough for a monkey to get their forepaw into. And the gourd is full of nuts. The monkey grabs the nuts, and now their hand's a fist. As long as they hang onto the nuts, they can't get their hand out of the gourd until they open their hand. They won't let go of the nuts. They hang onto the nuts, and you can come right up and capture them. There's a lot of natives that eat really well with monkey because the monkey won't let go of the nuts to the point where it kills them. That's a picture of what theft can do to us. We won't let go of the, what we think is the valuables of this life, and so we wind up being captured by our own desires. And of course, we think of stealing and go, well, I, I haven't stolen stuff. What about stealing time? There's a lot of employee theft going on. People not doing a day's work for a day's pay. Fascinating. God says, I want you to labor. And that word means labor to the point of being physically tired. It actually means exhausted. In our culture, we say, no sweat. I don't want to work hard. I want to take it easy on the beach. God says, I want you to labor. I want you to work hard. I want you to be diligent. I want you to stop stealing. I want you to start working so that you have something to share. I want you to be a giver, not a taker because God is a giver. God's not a taker. And I want you to behave like God does. When you're generous, you behave like God is because God's generous. Does that make sense? Okay. Number four. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here's the principle. Each word is powerful. So use every word wisely in order to build others up and not to tear them down. Each word is powerful, so use every word wisely in order to build others up and not tear them down. He says, let no unwholesome word. This word unwholesome means corrupt. It means rotten, it means defiling, it means putrid, it means rotten fruit, it means spoiled fish, it means yucky, how's that, right? (laughs) There's the old phrase, what? Sticks and stones will, my bones, but words will. That is not true. Words are powerful. It's interesting. He doesn't say, let no unwholesome words, plural. He said, don't let a word, singular, proceed out of your mouth that's unwholesome. Words are so powerful and they can be used for good or evil. They can be used to build up or tear down. And words are very diagnostic because words reveal what's in your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Pastor Roger said a number of times, when life bumps into you, what spills out of you is what's inside you for better or worse. The story is told of a pastor who was hammering nails and making a wooden trellis for his garden. A little neighborhood boy was watching him intently. When the pastor asked him if he was trying to pick up some pointers on gardening, the little boy said, no, I'm just waiting to hear what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. (laughs) Life does hammer us, doesn't it? Life does bump us. People do slam into us, and the words that fall out of our mouths merely reveal what's inside us. Our speech is a very good diagnostic tool, because sometimes we lie to ourselves about what's really going on inside. It's kind of like a black box, but what comes out of you is a very good diagnostic tool for what's inside us. Paul says, manage the tongue. Make sure that the words edify according to need of the moment, the right words spoken at the right time to the right people with the right motives. See, the goal is to The edify means to build up. It means to encourage. It means to make stronger. It means them to show God's grace. How many of you have found that it's easier to speak first, think second? <laughs> Regret third, Right. Sometimes the words come out of my mouth. I'd like to fly, cast them, hook them back, and reel them back in. But you know when they're gone, they're gone. Sometimes the very best words you can possibly say is nothing. Zipping the lip, especially when it comes to your children and grandchildren's behavior, because you have thoughts about how they should be parenting your grandchildren. I have worn out multiple zippers by learning when not to speak. What I want to do is get a baseball bat, and I should just shut up and not say anything, right? And he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed. And the emphasis here is don't grieve him by your words. By your language. See, the Holy Spirit sealed us. The Holy Spirit's our down payment on heaven. You want to know you got heaven? The Holy Spirit lives in your life. He's your down payment. He's your security deposit. The fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you is guarantee and proof that you really do belong to God. And he's our guide. He will never abandon us. The problem becomes when we sin, the Holy Spirit doesn't stay outside the door and let you go in. When you sin, he goes in the door with you and he sees it all, and it causes him grief. And Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve your guide. Don't grieve the love of your soul. Now, the very last two verses tells us to get rid of five vices and embrace three virtues. Here's the vices. Number one, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor And slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the principle we must reject self centered anger and practice God centered kindness by forgiving others just as Jesus forgave us. We must reject Self centered anger and practice God centered kindness by forgiving others just as Jesus forgave us. And he starts listing anger and its friends. He talks about bitterness. And the Greek word here is a bitter root. A bitter root produces a bitter fruit. It's literally long standing resentment which refuses to be reconciled, it's an unwillingness to forgive. A bitter spirit is a spirit that nurses a wrong. It feeds it. It, it, it literally grows it until it corrupts your whole being. It's like an infection that saturates the body with, with wickedness. So bitterness is long standing. Secondly, he says wrath. Wrath on the other hand is a, is a quick outburst. It's a passionate uh, boiling outburst like a volcano that explodes and then dies down. Wrath is like when you light a match to tumbleweeds and they whoosh, really quick, they flare up. And then when all the tumbleweed gets burned, the fire goes out. You've been around people like that. They blow up quick, right? And they forget all about it. And everybody around them is still bleeding because they just dumped the bus on everybody. That's wrath. It's, it's really a quick flare up and then they forget about it. Anger is a long-lived, settled feeling of indignation. It's a person who's constantly angry. We've talked about angry as a result of a blocked goal. You want something, you can't get it, and they're angry at whatever's blocking it. The key is bring that goal to Jesus. Bring that goal to Jesus. I have a number of people in my life who I love dearly that are angry. And it's usually because God won't do what they want him to do that's their goal. They want God to do what he want they want him to do. And God's not going to do what he wants them to do because God is God and they're not. So, the key for anger among other things is to bring that goal to Jesus and ask him for his perspective. There's a progression to this. You're going to see bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. Clamor is a crying out. It's a yelling. Clamor is a noisy brawl. A clamorous person fights with their words. You ever had somebody who fights with their mouth? their tongue is like a sword. It's like a knife. They're sticking people and slashing people and creating a lot of havoc with their words. You know when this occurs? On the weekends, especially with a little booze. You know, some people don't have a lot of self-control. You get a little alcohol, then there's really no self-control, and then their mouth goes wacko. And that's why you see not just word fights, but physical fights and violent action you read the paper and you go whoa what happened there well it was 2 a.m. and everybody had been drinking and then the word started and then the fist started and then the guns came out so that's how it progresses right the last one malice it means it's it's a desire to injure somebody it basically says I now have a deliberate plan to harm you because I am filled with malice it's usually more than just words. It turns into physical violence. And Paul says, put away anger in its friends, right? You put it away because it's not just for their benefit. You put anger away because it's for your benefit. During World War II, the U.S. submarine Tang surfaced, began to fire on a large Japanese convoy of ships right off the coast of China. They only had eight torpedoes on board, so accuracy of every shot was essential. The first seven missiles struck every one of its targets, but when the eighth missile was launched, it deviated and headed straight back toward its own vessel. Within a matter of seconds, the torpedo scored a direct hit its own vessel and sank, killing everyone on board. That's what anger does to us it boomerangs around. We think we're gonna hurt them with our anger. It boomerangs around and wipes us out. Unwillingness to deal with anger causes pain for us. Dr. S.I. McMillan in his book, None of These Diseases writes that many physical ailments such as ulcers, high blood pressure and strokes are connected with holding on to resentment and bitterness toward others. He says, it might be written on many thousands of death certificates that the victim died of grudgitis. Carried a grudge, and it killed him. You carry unfinished, unresolved anger long enough, it will eat your lunch, not theirs. So Paul says, put that away, and that's a choice. Many, many people hang on to anger because it makes them feel self-righteous and superior to others. A lot of our movie scripts are all about righteous revenge. You know, it's morally necessary. Some people forgive, but they never forget. Dwight Moody says, Those who say they will forgive but can't forget, bury the hatchet, but they leave the handle out for immediate use. You know people like that. The hatchet's in the ground, but the handle is real handy, right? Jesus says, put away anger, means forgiving people like Jesus forgive us, completely and totally. You know, Jesus says, when he forgives, it's as far as the East is from the West. He throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. It's easier to forgive someone else when you realize how much you need forgiveness and how much we don't deserve it. When we realize our offenses, and how much Jesus has forgiven of us, we can be freed from the slavery of anger. He says, in contrast to that, be kind to one another. Kindness is love and work close. Kindness forgives, kindness shows mercy. Kindness is the sweat living out love in action. It's being sensitive to the needs of others and showing them that with tenderheartedness. It's compassion. Jesus is often seen in scripture as showing compassion. He healed the sick because it says he was what? moved with compassion. Compassion literally means to feel with somebody else. It's, it, it feels empathy. You feel their pain, literally feel their pain. He literally hurt with them. And the scripture is filled with that. The good Samaritan helped the person who had been robbed because he had compassion on him. The father of the prodigal son had compassion on his son and showed him for kindness and forgiveness. And our model for that is Jesus Christ. He says, you forgive each other in the same way that Christ has forgiven you. If Christ forgave us the same way we forgave each other, what would that look like? Most of us wouldn't be going to heaven because he forgives us completely. He laid down his life to demonstrate God's forgiveness. So the model for this, the end of the day, is the solution for anger is forgiveness and kindness. So Paul says, look, you are no longer living a before Christ life. You belong to Jesus and your lifestyle should reflect the fact that you are connected with the living God. Let's summarize, then Marty will come and lead us in prayer requests and praises. Number one, before Christ, our minds were blind, our hearts were hard, our conscience was calloused, And we were dominated by our selfish desires so that we lived eternally empty lives. And by the way, just because you're in Christ doesn't mean we won't struggle with this. We will struggle with these things until we die. But we have the power of God in us now to help us deal with that. Number two, following Jesus means stopping our old sinful behaviors. We've talked in this class a lot. You cannot hang on to Jesus and hang on to your sinful, sinful behaviors and remain one person. You've got to make a choice. If you're following Jesus, you're following Jesus. You have to let go. That's why he says lay aside. The solution to how to do that is fill our mind with God's word and choose to live holy lives. Number three, God's family must be truth tellers and promise keepers. Number four, unresolved anger can give Satan an opportunity to set up shop in our heart. So if there is anger, deal with it. Number five, we must work hard so that we have a surplus, not for self-centered reasons, but in order to share with those in need. Number six, each word is powerful, so use every word wisely in order to build others up and not tear them down. This happens all the time. Do you know that more reputations are murdered over coffee and tea cups than on the battlefield? See, see... When we talk about clamor, that's in-your-face harm. Gossip is behind-your-back harm. But you're still trying to kill somebody. So words are powerful. Lastly, we must reject self-centered anger and practice God-centered kindness by forgiving others the same way that Jesus forgave us. Okay? Now that you know, do. I love you all. Read ahead next week, Lord willing, Ephesians 5.
1: You've been listening to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Mana Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9:30 am. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com thank you for joining us and now that you know do